And so it is about just, yeah, becoming more of who we are. And that's a process. And it's, I guess, by adopting that perspective, it makes the journey of life more interesting and more fun and a lot less stressful and pressurized. And Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Otherwise podcast. We are headed towards the end of season one. Thanks for being along for the ride in this experiment this year. Uh, I really enjoyed doing the show. Um, it's been a lot of great conversations, and today uh, is no exception. Um, so we'll get to it here in a second. But I want to thank you all for uh, supporting the podcast as we've gone along. Those of you who subscribed, thank you. Those of you who have streamed, thank you as well. Uh, like I said, uh, starting after the December the 3rd episode, we are going to take a break. And um, again, by we, I mean me and my computer and my microphone. Uh, and then coming back maybe second, third week of January, I'll let you know on social media when that's going to happen. Uh, but just going to rethink some things, restructure some things, and come back with a new show that I think um, I think you'll enjoy. And uh, I know I'll enjoy it. So, uh, But today's conversation is with someone that I've just been recently connected with, which is Felina Hewerts. Um, Felina is the author of several books, one of them called Pilgrimage of a Soul, which we'll talk about in the episode. Also, uh, a new book called Mindful Silence, uh, which is about Christian contemplation. So if you don't know much about that, this book is a fantastic way to jump into it. Uh, she's founding partner of Gravity, a center for contemplative activism. And for nearly 20 years or so, she and her husband, Chris, who is also an author, uh, have co-directed this international not-for-profit in more than like 70 countries. And they've built community among victims of um, human trafficking, uh, survivors of HIV and AIDS, abandoned children, child soldiers, and war brides. It's, she's been in it, guys. She's, she's earned the wisdom that she has. She is a spiritual director. She's also a yoga instructor, a public speaker, a retreat guide, and obviously an author. I'm sure there's like nine or ten other things that she does. But uh, I, this conversation is going to be good because she talks about several things that are that have been very important to me in my own journey, which is understanding stages of faith, understanding what happens when we transition from one stage to another, when our faith starts to feel um, like somebody else's, I, I say this in the episode, like we're wearing clothes that are way too small for us. What do we do then? So she talks about that. So I'm going to stop blabbing and let you get to the conversation. But one little note, um, technology is glorious. And it's great and allows us to do great things, but sometimes it is not our friend. So throughout the episode, we were fighting some kind of little beep. And you will hear it. It is relatively high-pitched, but I'm going to pull it down a little bit so it doesn't deafen you. But just be aware, there's some really great content under the beep. So I will edit as much of it out as I can, but... Um, I have edited out as much as I can, but just know that that's coming, and I hope you'll uh, be able to work through that to listen to this conversation with Felina Hewerts. Felina, thank you so much for taking some time today to be on the podcast. I'm, I'm really, really happy to have a conversation with you today. Well, it's an honor to be invited, so thanks for taking time to visit with me. So you are uh, at Gravity in Nebraska right now. Um, what what does a day like today look like for you? Mm. Well, a day like today looks like getting ready to 
hit the road. I'll be traveling to uh, Austin area um, to kind of kick off the book tour for Mindful Silence. And uh, I'm actually really looking forward to the, the trip because it's um, it's in a remote location in beautiful outdoors. And um, it, even the, the talks that I'll be giving will be in the outdoors. So uh, my friend there who's hosting me said, it's like a soul bath out there. So I am actually in need of a soul bath right now. So I'm looking forward to that. But to get to your question, um, yeah, so it's like I come to the center and um, it's a small space, about a thousand square feet. And uh, there are three of us that work consistently out of this office, my husband, Chris, myself, and our operations manager. And I should say Basil, my dog, he's always here as well. So there's actually four of us. I was going to say, don't forget, I know <laughs> there's right. four people. Yeah, he's, he's basically a person, let's be honest. <laughs> uh, a person with four legs, he's amazing. So yeah, we all gather here and we do our thing. Um, normally, my afternoons are filled with spiritual direction appointments. And my mornings are committed to meditation, reflection, and administrative work. Uh, so yeah, that's a little bit about what happens here. So when you and Chris set out to found gravity, uh, how close is what's happening now to the initial vision you had of what it was going to look like when you started it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the, the vision for it really started probably eight years ago when we were on the Camino de Santiago. And as we um, traveled across Spain, our feet were our only carriage. We walked about eight to 10 hours a day. And each evening we were welcomed and hosted by um, folks who provided a bed and a warm meal, these little pilgrim houses um, that we encountered along the way. And we started to capture a vision for what would it be like to create space for pilgrims journeying through life who need to stop and reflect and rest and um, awaken at deeper levels. And, you know, that's, that's as much of the vision as we had then. It's very vague. We didn't, it wasn't very concrete. And then as time unfolded, um, gravity became more concrete. We, we actually came up with a name and we knew that we wanted to give contemplative retreats when we started gravity, I was finishing up my degree in Christian spirituality and my certification in uh, spiritual direction. And we imagined that, you know, that would be a big part of my work too. But all of this was yet to be seen, you know, it was like kind of a big risk starting something, hoping and imagining that people would actually want to come to the retreats, that people would actually value spiritual direction and need that, that sort of thing. So, and at that time, we we didn't know that Chris's vocation would evolve into so much Enneagram work. So I would say that the vision, you know, early on was kind of like lines um, of, a, of a picture that had yet to be filled in. And in time, um, we started filling in those lines with more color. And it's evolved really naturally, organically, very purposefully and and it just feels perfect the way it's developed for us. It feels really good to be able to do. The most beautiful part of that is I think we plan. And as a spiritual director myself, I, I see people wrestling with plans. They plan mm-hmm. to do this and plan to be here and plan to go there. And then 
what Christian spirituality is all about is it's not about where you're going or what you're doing, but also it's that, but it's also who you're becoming. And mm. so much of what you just said is, is as much about your and Chris's vision for gravity as it is about the people you became in the interim when in the distance between thinking and doing. Um, there's been some change. And some of that change comes through in Pilgrimage of a Soul. You talked a lot about stages. And mm. so you talked about the different stages of, of the spiritual life. How, how, how do you help people understand that idea of that there are stages of becoming and they, they each have their own unique blessings and their own unique challenges? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, you're really insightful to, to point that out. Uh, I do feel like uh, an evolving work of progress that every day is, is a commitment to that, um, that movement of becoming. And I, I guess, you know, a lot of us struggle with wanting to arrive somewhere. Like we want to we somehow get there. I know I don't even know where there is, but, but if we can adopt a, a posture of, for me, it's about resting in God and trusting in God, deepening trust and surrender to the mystery that is the source of my life. And, um, as I, kind of melt into that more and more, I get to sort of co-create with this divine energy in the world. And, and so it is about just, yeah, becoming more of who we are. And that's a process. And it's, I guess by adopting that perspective, it makes the journey of life more interesting and more fun and a lot less stressful and pressurized and you know, we can just accept where we are and open to what we might be. In in the new book, um, you talk about a, a transition moment that happened for you. Um, and it's what I love is, especially in both books, in Pilgrimage of a Soul and in Mindful Silence, your new book, you, you wrap the concepts around stories. And specifically a personal story of your own. So whether it's walking the Camino or whether it's uh, the, pro- the journey from uh, a certain type of faith, a certain way of being faithful to a new way of being faithful and how contemplative spirituality was sort of the bridge between the two. Do you, do you notice uh, anything that's common among people who are making the transition from one stage of faith to another, is there something that catalyzes that that's the same? Oh, well, often suffering does it. Um, When we live long enough and encounter life in such a way that it's no longer resolvable, where the answers that used to work aren't working anymore, that generally... Uh, propels us into into the unknown, which carries us into a new stage of of, of being and knowing and unknowing, really. Yeah, because the it's interesting that you you talk in the book about your journey from uh, into a kind of darkness and everything we've talked on this podcast before about 
books like The Critical Journey and Falling Upward and some of the ones that talk about the journey between the stages, there always does seem to be a, a moment of pain, almost like children uh, physically growing. There's, there's a stage mm-hmm. of growing mm-hmm. pains before you get to the next spot. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When you talk with folks who, who are the pilgrims who come to gravity or people you encounter through what you've written, uh, how have you how do you feel like is best to guide people who are in process between stages? Mm -hmm. Well, I think about those who come on our retreats and first of all, um, I think most wonderful gifts for people like that is to find that they're not alone, that they're in the company of other people who are experiencing a very similar, uh, stage in the, in the journey of life and spirit. And, and that's comforting, uh, in my one-on-one work with spiritual direction clients, uh, I think it's really important for clients to be seen and, um, and to, in the process of being seen and kind of held in that in-between space, uh, they, I think, acquire, um, uh, a deeper trust. Um, it is such a trust fall. Um, when we, when we evolve from one stage to another, it's so scary for most of us. And, um, in the, in the process of spiritual direction, a one-on-one work or in community work with people who are in a similar stage, there's, I think in the holding space, there is the, the opportunity to trust, um, and to discover that they are being held. Um, so what felt like maybe a free fall, they begin to, to experience a holding, which I find so, so incredibly uh, helpful because like in my own life, I think for so long, my faith was about me holding on. Sure. And, um, and when we, when we go through these transitions and we discover that in reality, we are being held, um, that we're in love, we're being held in love that sustains our life and that nothing, 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 nothing can separate us from that love and, um, a deeper, um, security, um, develops where we don't have to live with so much fear that, that we might you know, if we let go, we might be lost forever or something like that, you know, but we find we're being, we're being held and we're being carried and, um, and we can trust in that, you know, and kind of, and kind of just get along for the ride, you know, move on for the ride. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting too, because what strikes me most about this is that there's, there's not a, there's not a pragmatic manual to this kind right. of part of the journey. There's not a steps seven through or, you know, these irrefutable laws of changing from one spiritual stage to another. There's there's not a there's not a a lever to push. And that for some of us just increases Mm. the fear because we've sort of been given a faith that Mm -hmm. we can manage. And it's when faith becomes unmanageable. Uh, that this becomes a real challenge. Yeah, but then this is this is when it all opens up into what is most real, and it's like learning how to navigate with new eyes and new ears, and 
a new way of relating to God. And I like how Cynthia Bergeau um, talks about the, these different operating systems. Um, and when she's talking about um, dual and non-dual thinking, she, she's talking about these two different operating systems. But in the way that we're talking about this, this movement, this evolution of our spiritual journey, um, it is like this new operating system of how to relate to God. And um, it's something we just have to learn as we go. You know, there isn't a manual and nobody can teach us. People can help guide us, but, um, but we have to figure so much of this out on our own, um, kind of following in the footsteps of those who've gone before us. But it's like nobody can do the work for us or do the experience for us or download you know, the, the information or the steps to us, like it is a, it is a dance. It's kind of a cosmic dance. Would you say that, uh, you brought up non-dualistic and dualistic thinking, and we've talked about that on the podcast before, but, um, non-dualistic, dualistic being the hard lines between good, bad, right, wrong, in, out, uh, very, very solid categories, uh, and boundaries, whereas dual, uh, non-dualistic thinking explores the good on both sides and has a more open approach. Uh, the thought that occurred to me is, and this is one of those thoughts that you, you talk about in the book about how contemplation helps us understand what's really happening. Um, the idea is that dualistic thinking requires facts and talking points and data, whereas non-dualistic thinking really requires wisdom in a mm. lot of ways. Does that make sense? Would that jive with what you've experienced? Mm. Yeah, I really like the way you put that. Um, yeah, I think non-dual, not, the non-dual approach is, um, it does require wisdom, but you kind of acquire the wisdom as you go. I think initially it's it, it requires trust, a deepening of trust and faith. And, and I mean, that's what we're really getting at. And when we get into contemplative spirituality is, is a radical trust, you know, and, and when we've inherited a faith that is packaged up very nicely and we have all the answers and we are kind of in control of it, um, we realize how very little trust we actually have that we're, we're trusting in ourselves and what, and, and what we know, but the onward journey is about letting go of ourself and what we know and trusting in, you know, the divine who's got us. I think there's a, there's a story in Mindful Silence that to me captures that, and it's about a visit you took to a war-torn village. Uh, it's the story about the amputations. Would you... Would you be willing to kind of break that down for people? Because I think that really highlights what you just said. Mm. Yeah. So um, about eight years into my uh, work with um, this previous organization, um, we were involved in social justice work around the world, uh, working with survivors of trafficking, children on the streets, um, children with HIV and AIDS. And uh, we did this work for almost 20 years about midway through, we found ourselves in Freetown, Sierra Leone, trying to respond to the Civil War there. And um, we 
we met a number of survivors of the war who had uh, who had been subject to um, amputations of arm, their arm or their leg. Uh, even a small child uh, at three months old was um, she was a victim of this kind of amputation. It was just horrific that the rebel soldiers and the the government soldiers both were guilty of this crime um, as a way of ensuing control of the population. So at any rate, um, one day I was visiting with young girls who had uh, been um, torn away from their families, subjected to horrible violence. Um, They were conscripted into the war as war brides, meaning that they were subjected to domestic and sexual slavery. And many of these young girls had babies um, from the, the, um, you know, outcomes of, of the, the violence that these young girls had endured. And, and what was, and they, what was the, yeah, maybe the youngest was girl that I yeah. visited with? Uh, probably 13. Wow. Yeah. They were young, very young. And, um, and so I, I spent the day meeting these young girls and I mean, they were just completely traumatized, you know, they, they'd lost everything and they had been living for many of them for a number of years, um, with this, in this kind of slavery. And now they were out and they were living in these, uh, UN peacekeeping, uh, camps and they had nothing and no one, and they were desperate. So they, um, wanted to tell their story to, to any foreigner that would listen. And, um, and so I listened to story after story. And obviously I was, um, I experienced like some secondary trauma through that. Um, but as I listened, I, I heard about these soldiers and and the horrible things that they did to them and their parents and, and then the the ongoing violence that these soldiers wielded against them. And, and so I, um, quickly, you know, cast judgment on these soldiers who were guilty for the crimes they'd committed against these young girls who put who had become my friends and I wanted justice, you know, and I wanted these soldiers to pay for what they'd done. And I had, um, yeah, I just, I, I, I figured there was a, there was, you know, there's good and there's evil and, and there's a way to resolve this crisis. Um, and then the next day our host uh, invited us to visit the young boys, um, who had recently been disarmed and so these young soldiers that had committed the crimes that I'd heard about the day before were now um, gathering to meet with, with me. And um, we gathered in a similar tent. And these boys were um, very young. I mean, some of these boys were as young as five, seven, and just dressed in rags. And like the young girls, they'd lost everything. And like the young girls, they'd been victims of the war. Um, the soldiers had done whole things to them before these young boys became soldiers. And so as I listened to the young boys tell their story, they, you know, they'd lost everything and they um, were now, you know, out of the war and trying to figure out how they were going to be reintroduced to society with the people that they committed atrocities against. And, you know, and the young boys uh, had been given drugs um, uh, to, to, and then they were given guns that were too heavy for them to carry, and they were um, they were 
you know, they were forced to do a lot of the things that they, that they did. And, and so I left that experience, came home, was retelling this to a friend of mine and she looked at me in the eyes and she asked, do you ever doubt the goodness of God? And it was just like a dam broke within me because I was no longer able to resolve this horrific cycle of suffering and injustice. It was like everywhere I looked, I was looking for someone to blame. I was looking for a way to resolve the, the injustice and suffering. And everywhere I turned, it was just like, there's always another victim. It's like the oppressor was also a victim and um, the victim becomes an oppressor. And it was just like, there was no end to it. And so that was the beginning of what I came to later understand is a crisis of faith where the paradigms that I had grown comfortable with before in terms of how I understood God, myself, others, and uh, the world that we live in really were, were crashing um, to the ground. Nothing was making sense anymore. And, uh, and, and so this is perhaps a, an example of, of what happens when we progress on a spiritual journey and we can no longer resolve the pain and the suffering that we either experience personally or encounter in the world. And we need something bigger to be able to hold um, these kinds of paradoxes and contradictions. So as you've examined that, obviously you've, from the book, it's, it's apparent that you've examined that, you've chased through it a bit, through the, through the practice of contemplative prayer and contemplative spirituality. What, what wisdom have you come to regarding that situation? Because what strikes me is uh, it's, it's writ large. It's, the big, it's a big and extreme, somewhat extreme example of what a lot of us deal with on a regular basis. And I'm not at all equating our little troubles to what happened in this village, but it's always a, there's always the presence of a, a battle between how do I, how do I deal with these two things that are competitive with each other that Mm -hmm. I need to resolve quote unquote, and I can't resolve them. I feel like that's a constant discussion. So Mm. what wisdom has contemplation given you regarding that dealing with those two competing narratives that you had to wrestle with? Mm. What comes to mind is, is the image of the cross and that this is when we, when we encounter these kinds of competing, um, what would you call them competing? What, um, realities or Uh, maybe realities, maybe circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. um, maybe view viewpoints of reality, so to speak. Yeah. Then it's like, it's that tension that is, is, is portrayed on the cross, like being stretched in two different directions and the two seemingly don't come together. So, you know, whatever suffering we're dealing with, if it's, you know, the, the spouse who betrays us, commits an affair and, we, you know, we're hurting over what the spouse has done, but we love the spouse. The two things don't seem to go together or, um, the, the child who, who is sick and, and doesn't survive, um, you know, how can God be good when, when the child isn't able to live a full life or different, these different challenges that we face. So anyway, it's like, I, I just see these tensions in the portrayal of the cross 
being stretched in opposite positions with, or opposite directions, which opens us to a new way of being in the world. And for me, it, that's just been about opening to greater and greater love that can hold these opposing experiences where it's like we they don't have to necessarily be resolved. Love is big enough to hold all of that and to help us um, kind of increase our capacity to hold reality as it is. One of the things I love about what you bring into uh, the book Mindful Silence is the way that you bring together um, your story and some of the details. And so if you're, if anybody's listening and you're thinking, you've been talking about contemplation, contemplation, contemplative prayer, contemplative spirituality. I don't know what exactly that means. The, the book is really, really good in helping to open that up. But what I love that you do is you also bring together some of these, uh, what a good friend of mine would call the old dead guys. Um, the, the ancient voices, the, the wise voices that mm-hmm. have, have gone, you know, have gone ahead of us. And they've left us two things. They've left us their way of dealing with things. So you talk about St. Ignatius. You talk about um, Thomas Merton. They've left us uh, and others. You, they've left us ways of processing our relationship and life with God and our spirituality. But they also leave us their own lives, uh, which sometimes there's a there's a weird tension between the life of someone like Saint Ignatius and the practices that he left behind. How how did you how did that um, how did you explore those things as you were writing this book? Because obviously you had to investigate not only what they talked about but also the person that they were. Uh, what did anything? Did you learn anything from that process? Um, can you repeat the question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I get in trouble for asking <laughs> giant questions. So it, dealing with um, the life of a person mm. like Thomas Merton and the teachings mm. of a person like Thomas Merton, there's always, a, there's always an interesting interplay between the life of a person and what they taught. Did you, when you examine some of these folks that are throughout the book, did you find any interesting dynamics that you didn't know existed or mm. any wisdom that you you weren't hmm. expecting to find? Well, I, I think about Claire of Assisi, um, and I don't know if you've got, did you get to that chapter yet? I don't think I've gotten to that chapter just uh, yet. Okay, well, that you'll appreciate that chapter after talking about it right now. It's like, uh, I, I knew very little about her. I, I knew much about Francis of Assisi in my um, exploration and reading of him, um, during a pilgrimage, actually, to Assisi, I, I, I then encountered this woman named Claire and um, was completely surprised by the power of this young girl who, um, who defied all the convention of her day, um, defied what it meant to be a woman, um, and, and joined, she was the first woman to join the band of Francis and his brothers. And... Um, she made this radical commitment to a life of contemplation and support of, of Francis and the others who, who had a, you know, a life that was, you know, deeply devoted to prayer, but also active in the world. And 
as a woman in her day, she was not afforded the opportunity to be um, both committed to a religious life of prayer and um, out and about in society. So she was cloistered and ended up being an incredible support to Francis. And um, she just, yeah, I mean, she blew me away. I ended up having a pretty profound mystical experience with her that I was not seeking. And I um, was really taken off guard by that, by her living presence, you know, 700, 800 years after her death, um, when I visited the, the convent where she lived um, when she was on earth. So I was blown away by the power of, of a woman who had devoted her life to deep, intimate prayer with God. And um, yeah, and this invitation to integrate contemplation and action came really strong through her. So if, if someone listening, um, and what I, what I love about conversations like this is a lot of times people have an experience and what you and your, not only retreats, but in, uh, as a spiritual director and also as a writer can do is lend a language to something that a person, whether it's myself or someone else knows is, is a reality, but just doesn't know how to talk about it. You know, this feeling of mm. I've been a I've been a Christian for decades and now all of a sudden it feels like I'm wearing somebody else's clothes. Uh, I don't know what to do with this mm. is, you know, immediately there's part of especially those of us who grew up as evangelicals. We immediately turn inward and go, well, if God feels distant, I must have moved. Um, and mm. I don't know that that's completely untrue, but I think it's untrue in the way that we say it. <laughs> There's movement that's mm. happened. It's just not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing. So as mm. a person walks through reading Mindful Silence or reading Pilgrimage of a Soul, which I would recommend both of those, is there something that you would hope they walk away with from either or both of those books it, uh, a certain thing that as you were writing them and as you think about them now that you would say, I hope people come away with blank. What, what would that thing be? Sometimes we talked about how sometimes it's good to just give language to things. Um, people, anybody coming away yeah. from reading Pilgrimage of a Soul or, or Mindful Silence, what would, what would the thing be that you want them to have, to possess, to, to carry away from mm. that? What's the one thing, one or two things that you'd want them to take mm. away? Yeah, I really hope people will capture the value of contemplative practice and and then commit to a contemplative practice because I'm just convinced that that this is the way of the future, that we need uh, contemplative practice to help us really use our full brain. I mean, it's as practical as that, like just being able to... Um, to see reality for what it is and then um, open up to our full potential as children of God. I, I think we, we struggle to do that without a contemplative practice. So if my readers will capture the value of contemplative practice and find the grace to commit to it, then I think the books have done their job. Well, I have a feeling they will. That's, that's a, it's been a very encouraging thing. It's it's interesting. I'm kind of at a spot where I had, uh, I had really, sort of misplaced the 
the contemplative practices a bit. Um, some of it because of just getting busy. Some of it because of, uh, I think there's sometimes we get to a place where we need to set practices aside and then come back to them. Um, so I was kind of in that spot and then I started reading and I thought, this is, it feels like coming back to, uh, to a very familiar town, you know, where all the restaurants are mm. and you know where the best places to watch the sunset are. And so I appreciate you for re- rebuilding my hometown, so to speak. Oh, great. Love that. Well, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And um, sure. blessings on your travels and your book tour and all the good things you get to do. Thank you so much. Thank you. See, I told you guys, Felina is the real deal. Uh, if you follow the link in the notes, you will find a way that you can pick up uh, Mindful Silence. Also from uh, their website, Gravity, you can find out about retreats that they're holding, things that you can uh, go out to beautiful Omaha, Nebraska, and participate in. Uh, you'll also find ways to connect with her on social media and the the uh, the interwebs. Yeah, she's got a website. Everybody does, but she has one, and uh, you should check it out. So thanks for listening. Uh, I pray this has been a blessing for you. Uh, and again, winding down the season next week um, is the last episode of the season. That is very hard to believe. Yes. Well, I hope you'll miss me. I will miss you. But until next episode, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. <laughs>